All right, why don't you grab your Bibles and your notebooks and pens? We are going to be in uh, Isaiah 59 this morning. Like I said last week, we're going to be jumping around. We'll come back to Isaiah 58 next week in the middle of Freedom Sunday. Today we're going to be covering Isaiah 59, 1 through Isaiah 60, verse 3. And while you're getting settled, let's uh, prepare our hearts and minds to hear the Word of God. God and Creator of all the earth, we are humbled before you this morning. You are so incredibly different than we are. Your ways are higher than our ways. Your wisdom is grander than our wisdom could ever be. And your plan of salvation is so outside the realm of our logic and our understanding. But that is why we keep coming back to your word. Within ourselves, you've placed the immense capability of intelligence and wisdom, and yet our depraved minds and our sin keep us from fully comprehending your wisdom. Only outside of ourselves, in you and your plan and by the power of the Holy Spirit, can we find the answers to our sinfulness and, our, and, and the injustice around us. And so we come to your words today with open hearts and minds, ready for you to reveal your manifold wisdom to us. Please help us by your Holy Spirit to understand and apply what we study today. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right, well, this morning, I'm going to begin with a little exercise. Now, uh, this exercise is going to seem, at the start, extremely politically incorrect. Okay, so starting off well, right? Okay. Um, but just bear with me as we go a bit here because you're going to see where I'm going with this. I'm going to put some pictures on the screen, and I want you to quietly, okay, no shouting it out. That would be severely politically incorrect. Uh, no, no yelling, just quietly to yourself. I want each of you individually to guess the religion of the people that are pictured. So what religion would you guess for each of these people? Just say it quietly to yourself. Okay. Good Seventh-day Adventist there? No, just kidding, just kidding. See, politically incorrect. All right, how about this one? How about this one? Don't say it out loud. You guys didn't do very well at Simon Says, did you? How about this one? And then this one. Now, we all know innately that it is never a good idea to judge a book by its cover. For example, don't ever go up to, well, don't go to every tall guy and ask him if he played basketball. For those of us that did, it's a great conversation starter. For those of you who didn't and are tall, it's never a fun conversation starter, right? We don't judge a book by its cover. But what we also don't realize is that we have, unfortunately, been trained to do so. In our worldview, we are, we are trained to judge books by their cover, especially when it comes to religion. You see, there is something very, very interesting about religions outside of true Christianity. A couple of things are very, very true. Religions outside Christianity are often, if not always, framed in a cultural context that sticks with it. And they are often, if not always, centered in a given geography. Let me say that again. They're often, if not always, framed in a cultural context, and they're often, if not always, centered in a given geography. Now, there are exceptions to every rule, 
But for the most part, this is true. So for example, culturally, Islam has always had a certain cultural backing. Dress, what you eat, it's distinguishable. Islam has always been centered in Saudi Arabia, specifically Mecca and Medina. Hinduism emerged in the plain of the Ganges River in northern India over 3,000 years ago. And yet, over that whole time, it has never left its cultural roots or its geographic center in northern India. Sikhism originated in the Punjab region of India, and again, it's never left its cultural or geographic center. And even Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses have their cultural and geographic center in the United States and Western intellectualism. Now we see this all over the place around us, but even biblically. Let me give you an example here. I always go to 1 Kings 11. It's a great uh, understanding of how uh, religions outside of true biblical Christianity, the following of the God of the Bible, they always seem to be attached to a culture and a geography. Here, here we go. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. And Solomon clung to these in love. A few verses later, it says, for when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not wholly follow the Lord, as David his father had done. So we see in the Bible and around us this idea that these religions are culturally and geographically centered and so much so that it even affected Christianity. The interesting thing is, when Western missionaries originally started leaving Europe in the 1600s, 1700s, 1800s, and they first went out and branched out to take the gospel to the nations, they made the mistake of cloaking it in Western culture. In other words, if you want to be Christian, you have to be Western. And you can still see the effects of this to this day. When you go to Burkina Faso or Lebanon or Indonesia, you will see men and women in many cases wearing Western clothing to church. They won't wear it during the week, but at church they have a certain dress. Why? Because the Western missionaries told them that to be Christian you must also be Western. Christianity was branded as the white man's religion from the West. But we all know that this is not the case. In fact, Jesus, I know this is shocking to some, was not white. He looked way more like a person who you might consider Muslim if you were ethnocentric and, and not really paying attention than he would a Western white Christian. But we all know that what started to happen in the last century is that Christianity started to shift from the West because Europe is basically dead. The United States is dying. And so Christianity started to spread East and South in a big way. The largest churches are in South Korea and Brazil and Africa. There's no outward cultural appearance of Christianity. There's no geographic center of Christianity. In fact, 
The center of geographic Christianity is wherever the Spirit is. It's not Rome. It's not Jerusalem. It's wherever the Spirit is. And so it seems to me, when I look at the various religions of the world, that the only true biblical Christianity has what some theologians have called cultural and geographical translatability. Now, I know this seems very academic, but just bear with me here. Only Christianity can go across cultural and geographic lines and not lose any of its core belief system. If you truly think about that and ponder that, that should give you massive encouragement of your faith. Massive proof that Jesus Christ and his faith is the only true faith. It's not weak so that it has to stay in a culture. It's not weak so that you have to go in and destroy a culture in order to conquer it in the name of that religion. It can go into any given culture at any time. And yes, there is change, but it comes from within, not outwardly. It has no geographic temple because the church made up of Christ's followers is the temple in which God dwells. There's no river we have to go wash in. There's no land we have to go bow down and kiss. Christianity has no central location or culture because the Spirit unifies Christians across the world so much so that they couldn't be picked out of a cultural lineup. True Christianity can only be determined by the love and holiness of Christ among his people. Or, we might say, it can be, term, be determined by the reign of the King Jesus among his citizens. True Christianity's culture is found inwardly, not outwardly. And it conquers through an inward regeneration, not a manufactured outward submission. Put another way, Christianity is the only religion that does not need to destroy a culture in order to conquer its people. Christianity is the only religion that does not need to destroy a culture in order to conquer its people. If I'm talking with Afghani Christian women, they may be wearing a hijab. If I'm talking with Burkina Bay Christian men, they may be wearing the same thing as their Muslim neighbors. Christianity alone can penetrate cultures and geography and build a new people from within, following Yahweh, the Redeemer, and his Redeemer, Jesus Christ. And so, in fact, we, as Christians, must understand that this is the, the plan of the Bible, that the lordship and reign of Jesus Christ slowly but surely creeps across the world that is his. And we can look at those pictures we just saw, and we must realize as Christians that any one of those people could be a Christian. Wearing a hijab, having a red dot on the forehead, None of those things disqualifies a person from being a Christian. It is the inward regeneration of the heart and the outward manifestation of the kingdom principles of love and compassion that shows a person is a Christian. And this end result of a worldwide kingdom conquered by Christ's love, made up of many nations and people groups, is what the Bible says is the final outcome 
of the work of shalom that God has been working at since Genesis. And so one of the theological lenses that I see the Word of God through, and I really want to impress upon you to see the Word of God through, is this idea that God is at war to conquer the world, but to do it not by destruction, but by restoration. The Lord's plan is to advance his kingdom bit by bit in the hearts of men and women, inaugurating and spreading his reign into every tribe and tongue on earth. And one day he will return to rule and reign in fullness. And if you get this theological lens, it will transform you the way you read the Bible and the way you live your life. Because this morning I want us to really wrestle with this truth and be empowered by this truth. We follow the king that is conquering the whole world. We follow the king that is conquering the whole world. In an age where we see Kim Jong-un throwing off missiles and we see Al-Qaeda creeping into the north of our friends in Burkina Faso and we hear about wars and rumors of wars and craziness all around us, Nothing has changed. It is the last vestiges of a defeated foe crying out in agony that he is defeated because we follow the king that is conquering the whole world. Let's take a look at just a few of the many passages that project this storyline throughout Scripture. Here's the first one. You can write it down. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. You know it well. We've used it a lot in Isaiah. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now we think nation and we as good nationalistic patriotic Americans think a nation has a culture. Well, the nation of the kingdom of heaven doesn't have the culture as we know it. It doesn't fly a given flag. It doesn't have a given dress. It doesn't have a given language. It is known by the regenerated hearts of its citizens living out the law of Christ in their life. Well, let's skip from the beginning of the story to the middle of the story. Here's Psalm 2, verses 1 through 9. Psalm 2, verses 1 through 9. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath. And terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Does this sound like conquering language to you? We just studied it the other day, Isaiah 54, talking about the nation of Israel needing to spread its tent stakes 
so that more nations can be welcomed in, the Gentiles, to make up the people of God. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes, for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. Israel will be one day the nation that is first among the nations, But together, Jew and Gentile, we will all be one people of God. The beginning of the story, the middle of the story, and the end of the story, it speaks of this theological theme that we follow the king that is conquering the whole world. Look at Revelation, the end of the story. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Imagine that coming out in every language on earth all at once. So many of us become so dull and blind because we're so focused on whether or not we're saved and get to go to heaven when we die that we miss the very most important thing that is the storyline of the Bible. It's not about you and when you die and where you go. It is about the conquering king bringing the nations under his rule. This is why Jesus said in Matthew 24, 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. And this is why Paul said in Galatians, Galatians 3, 7 through 9. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Going all the way back to that beginning of the story we just talked about. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Doesn't matter what ethnicity you are. And I want you to notice, guys, notice that for a second. If you were taught that the gospel is about you getting saved and going to heaven, notice what this says. He preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. What was the good news? That Hans gets to go to heaven when he dies. No. In you, all the nations shall be blessed. You see, that entails within it the salvation of mankind, those who follow Jesus Christ and believe in him. But the overlying point, the powerful point of the Bible is not about me, it's not about you, it's about Jesus reigning on the throne, amen? It's about his kingdom being established in the law of Christ, the law of liberty, the law of love. It's about the rebellion of sin being put down once and for all. The plan of God has always been this continual movement of God's advancing reign over the world. And we stand in 2017 operating from the point of victory over Satan that was called and is called the cross of Calvary. But as we saw last week, we must remember that from the garden on, the world has been in the continual grasp of Satan and his offspring. And that is why we... Not the offspring of Satan, but the offspring of Christ proclaim that we follow the king that is conquering the whole world. He conquered on the cross, but he is conquering right now, and he will completely conquer one day. 
For those of you that are familiar with World War II language, the cross was akin to D-Day. And 11 months later, VE Day came and victory was complete. The cross was D-Day and we are headed towards VE Day. And in a world that is so upside down, this is good news. And just as the soldiers of World War II had to keep fighting to bring freedom to all of Europe, my grandfather was one of them. The war had basically ended, yet he was still in the midst of battles in Germany and Eastern Europe, breaking free Jews in the midst of prison camps, bringing freedom to the oppressed. Those soldiers did so from a point of victory. They battled from a point of victory. And God calls us the true offspring of Christ, those of you in this room that truly follow Jesus. He calls us to be a force for justice and righteousness in the midst of the world within the battle that was already determined in victory by our king. So next week, we're going to look at that in depth in Isaiah 58. But this morning, we're going to see how that flows out of 58 into 59 and 60. And so we have context for the fact that God is going among the nations, conquering them, bringing shalom to them. And so the first thing that we will see this morning, you can write this down, is our sin separates us from the conquering king. Our sin separates us from the conquering king. This morning, as I was getting ready for church and about to leave, uh, I brought my two sons to come and help with uh, setup. But my daughter heard us and she started screaming. And so I ran into her room and I said, honey, what's wrong? And she said, don't forget about me. Don't leave me. And I said, well, honey, remember, you're going with mama. We're, we're, the boys are going and you're going to come with mama later. And she said, oh, okay. And as I was pondering through that and thinking about the teaching this morning, I thought about the one and only time I have ever done paintball. The reason I stopped doing paintball is because uh, I wasn't very good at it. When I tried to dive uh, behind a log to keep myself from getting hit, I didn't realize that the top of my head and the bottoms of my feet were longer than the log. So I got shot in the heel and shot in the head. I was like, I'm done. I'm out. I can't hide behind anything. But there was one part where we were doing this outdoors uh, paintball where I realized that I had been hiding too long behind a rock and my entire team had left or been shot. That's a really scary thing when you're separated from the conquering army, right? So I just stood up and got shot and went out and got a soda, right? But that's not how it works in things of an eternal nature. You can't just stand up, get shot by, you know, the, the devil and then, you know, go and get a Coke, Right? It's a scary thing to be separated from the conquering king because that means you will find yourself slowly but surely behind enemy lines and in one sense a prisoner of war, but in another maybe you're just becoming part of that army. And so we see here in Isaiah 59, look at it with me, our sin separates us from the conquering king. Verse 1, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. In other words, God is powerful enough to always save. And the question of the atheist is, well, why doesn't he? Or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. That's a scary thought for those of us as Christians who sin in unrepentant sin and yet pray as if God's going to hear us. He doesn't hear you if you're in unrepentant sin. But we see two powerful things here that help us understand these couple of verses. First, we know that God is all-powerful. He has the capacity to do anything and everything. 
And yet, because of his power and his love, he has allowed mankind's free will to have room to move in this world. Otherwise, it wouldn't be love. And second, God desires to perform much of his work through those acting in their free will. Theologians call this his agents. In a sense, the suffering servant, Jesus Christ of Isaiah 53, is and was his agent. In a sense, each of us individually and collectively as the body of Christ are his agents in a world empowered by his Holy Spirit. And similarly, we know that the Israelites were to be his agents in the world. What kind of grade would you give the Israelites for their activity as his agents in the world? The Bible gives them a very low grade. Let's take a look at what they were supposed to be. In Exodus 19, 5 through 6, this is an example of what God called them to be. He said, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. We know from the New Testament that while Christ, or while God, Yahweh, claimed the whole earth, we also know that Satan is the prince of this earth. Well, that's not a contradiction. That is a statement of war. That there's a war going on and that the Israelites were the navy seals of God's army sent in place to be the people that acted as intermediaries between God and his rebellious creation. You see, a temple is the place where the divine and the earthly meet. That's why the Israelites had a temple in their midst. And they were to act as priests because a priest is the one who ministers on behalf of the people and on behalf of God as that intermediary. But yet, God is telling them in Isaiah 59, I'm not going to hear you. You can't perform your function as the priests. Why? Because they're the opposite of who God called them to be. Their very own sin kept them from acting in the role of intermediary and priest. And guys, we're not talking about people who were warring against the flesh here. We're talking about people who had surrendered to the flesh. They'd stood up, gotten shot, and gotten the coke. They could not be the light among the nations, practicing righteousness and justice and reflecting the character of God because they had replaced God's call to them to be that light by some apathetic religion. Instead, here is who they've become. Take a look there at verse 3. God speaks to them and he says, For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit or lawsuit justly. No one goes to law honestly. Is that America? Oh, sorry. Uh, They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs. They weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies, and from one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. In other words, all we're doing is giving birth to more and more sin and grossness. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity. The deeds and deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace, the way of shalom, they do not know. 
and there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. A part of this was quoted by Paul in Romans 3 to cry out that all are guilty under sin. And if we truly wrestle with this passage and let it work in our spirits, it quickly destroys the common refrain of so many people, maybe even including ourselves. But I'm a good person. You see, if we wrestle with this, we have to ask ourselves the questions. Am I selfish or selfless in my time and resources? If I wrestle with this, I have to ask, am I quick to turn and chase after evil in what I think, in what I say, in what I do, in what I watch? in what I listen to. There's this big blogosphere war going on right now between Kevin DeYoung, a a wonderful pastor in the Reformed tradition. He wrote an article on Gospel Coalition about how, hey, if you're a Christian, you shouldn't be watching Game of Thrones. Now, I've never seen Game of Thrones. I've read articles about it. Supposedly, it's basically pornography. I don't know. I haven't watched it. But it was amazing because he got such a backlash from the Christian community. Oh, legalism! Remember what I said last week about legalism? Calling somebody legalistic means that they just want to chase harder after following Jesus than you do. I should be able to watch whatever I want on Netflix. Yeah, and you have to realize that what's going in through your eyes goes into your heart. And out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth will speak and lives will be lived. Are we any different than these people? In a world that is filled with the demonic and the horror, and the, what are the dead people? Zombies. I'm amazed at how many Christians I talk to who are like, yeah, dude, I love, action, you know, zombie. We, we go and act it out and film ourselves acting like zombies. I'm like, you realize that zombies are the undead, right? They're, they're what Adam and Eve would have been if God didn't kick them out of the garden because they would have lived forever in a dead state. You realize that it is completely contrary to the Bible. Oh, that's legalism, man. No, it's stupidity. Don't be like the world. How hard is that to figure out? Are our thoughts of iniquity or righteousness? Are our lives characterized by the wholeness and peace of Jesus? Or are they filled with chaos and drama that we can't wait to post to social media? These people were in great distress, and they knew it. I wonder if sometimes we forget that we are in the same state often. And so Isaiah 59, starting in verse 9, they finally get it, and they start to confess it, and they acknowledge their brokenness in a statement of confession because if we are faithful to confess our sins, Christ is faithful to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so let's take a look at verse 9 there. They confess and they say, therefore, justice is far from us. In other words, because of our sin, justice is far from us. And righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight among those in full vigor. We are like dead men. 
We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. This was a new one for me, by the way. I didn't know that doves moaned. I, I don't know. Just to break up the seriousness here. I just didn't know that. Uh, we hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us and we know our iniquities. Transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God. Speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. Notice the change here. From the third person to the first person. They're crying out and saying, we are not citizens of the kingdom, even though we pretend to be. To be citizens of God's kingdom, we partner with him in his work of conquering the nations through his law of love. And we must understand our own iniquity, our brokenness, our sinfulness, our apathy, and we must confess it. And out of that, we become co-laborers in conquering the kingdom of darkness around us and the sin within us. Now, I want us to focus in on verse 11 specifically in this, in this idea here, in this vein, because notice what it says at the second half. Not the dove part. Forget about that. The second part. It says, we hope for justice, but there is none for salvation, but it is far from us. In Jewish poetry, even apocalyptic poetry like Isaiah or prophetic poetry, there's a device they use called parallelism where they'll say one thing and then they'll say the exact same thing using different words. And so he says, we hope for justice, but there is none. We hope for salvation, but it is far from us. For us to fully grasp the word salvation, as it was in the minds of the Israelites in the early church, we must understand that they did indeed want salvation from their sins and from their separation from God by way of his forgiveness. They did want that. Absolutely. That was half of what they viewed salvation to be. But they also wanted to be saved from the injustice surrounding them and from their pagan enemies that enslaved them. And so in the early church, they emphasized something called Christus Victor. Everybody say Christus Victor. It means the victorious or conquering Christ, the anointed king. It was emphasized because the early church knew something that I think we've kind of maybe forgotten or become blind to, and that was our truth of today. We follow the king that is conquering the whole world. Everybody say it with me. We follow the king that is conquering the whole world. In the West, we are very comfortable with the idea of salvation from our sins. And that's a good thing. Don't get me wrong. The Reformation hammered that home, and I am so thankful for that. We're not saved by works. We're saved by God's grace. We need to hope for that salvation that Christ has brought us, that we have by his death, that we are gaining through our sanctification, and that we will fully uh, have and possess when we are glorified at the end of days. But we must realize that God's plan of salvation also, just as much, in my estimation, includes the restoration of justice through his reign on this earth. Where his kingdom reign exists, justice must be sought. 
In fact, you cannot claim, I cannot claim to be a citizen of the kingdom if I watch justice happen in front of me. I have the ability to do something about it, and I don't do it. I can't claim to be a citizen. I'm not acting under his law. Where his kingdom reign exists, justice is sought. And you might say, well, Hans, there's so much injustice. How, how on earth can you say that? Well, uh, here's the question I have for most of us as Christians. Don't worry about fixing all the injustice. Is there something that you're going after? Something. Anything. To follow the king means that we must keep both of these ideas of salvation as true. Salvation from sins through his forgiveness and atoning work on the cross. And salvation, which means justice among injustice. To follow one or emphasize one to the detriment of the other is to miss the point of the word. And to follow the king that is conquering the whole world, we must realize that we are at war against unholiness in our lives and we are at war against injustice in the world. And this was perhaps the very reason Paul called Timothy to wake up to the fact that he was at war. He said to Timothy in his second letter, share in suffering. Man, us as American Christians, we're like, wait a minute, I thought God was all about comfort. No, share in suffering in the midst of the injustice around you. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Now, guys, get this with me. Paul is not saying to Timothy, leave where you're at and go somewhere else in order to do the work. He's saying right where you're at, recognize you're a soldier in the midst of your daily life, your daily work. Because we follow the king that is conquering the whole world. And so my question, dear saints, this morning is are you in the battle or are you entangled so heavily in civilian pursuits that you have forgotten you are at war? Which is it? Well, Isaiah 59, 14 brings it right back to us. Isaiah is speaking now as the narrator, and he says, verse 14, justice is turned back, and righteousness stands far away. Tzedakah mishpat, justice and righteousness. For truth has stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Guys, this is a statement that so heavily is stating to us that we are at war. But here is the wonderful news I want to empower you with and encourage you with, fill you with courage this morning. Write this down. God was, is, and will be victorious over sin and injustice. God was, is, and will be victorious over sin and injustice. Take a look now at Isaiah 59, 15, the second half with me, and we'll see the Lord looking down on his creation, and we'll see what he saw and sees and why he acted in sending his son. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him. 
that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. This is just like in Revelation when John looks and no one can open the scroll and he begins to weep. And yet, the lion of the tribe of Judah shows up as a lamb that was slaughtered. This paradox. This is the same thing. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. The Lord looked down on his creation. He looked on his people that were to bear his image of love and unity and selflessness and holiness. And all he saw was lying when he looked for truth. All he saw was injustice when he looked for justice. All he saw was evil when he looked for righteousness. And don't you love how uh, our, our English language cleans it up? It displeased him. Do you really think that's what it means? It displeased him. No, the Hebrew here says, and it was evil in the eyes of Yahweh that there was no justice. That's the literal Hebrew. It was evil in the eyes of Yahweh that there was no justice. And so God's all-powerful, omnipotent hand thrust its way into the darkness of this world in the form of his only son, Jesus Christ. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light, which gives light to everyone, he, Jesus, had come into the world. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Are we at war? Do you read the Bible this way? Do you read it for your daily motivational verse, or do you read it for your battle plans in the midst of enemy territory? John wrote this section in John 1 and John 3 that I combined there because he knew he was at war. God sent his only son to war against the darkness. And how did he do this? By Jesus submitting to the plan of the Father in all things, by living a life of holiness, fighting temptation at every turn. Remember Jesus in the desert? That wasn't just minor temptation. That was war against sin and selfishness. For three three years of ministry, Jesus brought healing, care, love, and selfless to the needy, the oppressed, the crippled, the forgotten, and the outcasts. That wasn't just social justice for the sake of social justice. That was war against the oppression of the darkness. And then Jesus offered his own life as a sinless sacrifice so that you and I could be forgiven for all that we have done that is an offense against the holy and loving and good God. That wasn't just a way for us to get into heaven. That was war against the darkness of rebellion in which we had participated And after three days in the grave, he resurrected, proving his victory over sin and death and injustice. 
Forty days later, he ascended to headquarters, to the throne of his kingdom, at the right hand of the Father interceding for us and empowering us by his Spirit to go to war against the enemy to whom he had already given the fatal blow. You see, Al-Qaeda knows that they're at war. Atheism knows that it's at war. Do we? Throughout Isaiah, and especially in the last few weeks, we have seen this perspective of God and his offspring fighting against the adversary. I love the way you said it last week, Shane. Adversary, as if he were Sean Connery in Red October. Adversary. I loved it. It was awesome. But we fight against the adversary and his offspring. It becomes so clear as we read the Bible especially here in Isaiah 59, 17. Look at what he says here in sending his son, God went to war. Look at verse 17, speaking of Yahweh. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay. Wrath to his adversaries. It's okay, you can laugh. Repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment, so they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising sun, for he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. Guys, does the beginning of this sound familiar to you at all? Does that first verse there in 17 sound familiar, New Testament saint? Turn with me to Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6. I love all the well-meaning Christian TV stations that have tried to come up with kids' uh, programs around this section of Scripture in Isaiah 6, the armor of God. And it usually ends up being some kind of Muppet figure with a helmet on, you know, I'm going to go to war, right? The reality is, is Paul isn't just giving us a, gee, here's a shot in the arm, let's go and have a good day and war against the darkness. No, guys, this is like St. Crispin's Day. This is like, this, this is like a Shakespeare play. This is like him saying, those of you that are fearful, depart and go to your homes. But those of us who stand here and lose our lives today, we will be remembered for eternity. That is what Paul is speaking of here. That is Ephesians 6. Look at verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the adversary, Hasatan, the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you, every one of you Christians, may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. 
and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Does it seem like a war cry to you? Does it seem like a war cry to you? When you see oppression in your midst, this is the war cry you follow. When you see injustice happening in a world that the Lord has conquered, he sends us, his armies, into the mix, not to be comfortable, but to be uncomfortable, bearing the suffering as good soldiers of Jesus Christ. When we look out and we see children that are not loved We see people that are not fed. We see churches that are not roofed. We act because we are commanded to by our general, by our king. And we act not in flesh and blood, in hatred and anger, but we act with strength that no enemy can destroy. True, unfailing love. We are the very image bearers of a God of love, a God of mercy, a God of truth, a God of justice, a God of compassion. And these very tools are the ones we use to crush the head of Satan and his kingdom of chaos into the dust. This is who we are. This is who you are. Do not believe any of the lies of the father of lies who tells you that you don't have the power, that you don't have the capability, that you don't have the personality, that you don't have the strength, that you don't have the inroads to do kingdom work. All it takes is just as Esther did, just as many of you done, to raise your hand and say, I'm here, Lord, send me. Just as God prepared himself for battle there in Isaiah 59, that culminated in the cross and resurrection We are to daily prepare for more amongst a world that wants to blind us and pacify us with faulty theology, with apathy, with mindless entertainment and athletics, and sin that seems good for a season but proves lethal in the long run. Guys, there is nothing wrong with entertainment. There is nothing wrong with athletics. There is nothing wrong with having your mind on something else for a moment. But what is your rally cry when you wake up in the morning? What is your life about? We must prepare ourselves each and every day for battle. And so, my last major point here is that Christ calls us to continue the fight as we await his return. Christ calls us to continue the fight as we await his return. Out of this battle cry there in Isaiah 59, there in verse 20, it speaks of the event of complete warfare. And a redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. Who is this Redeemer sent by Yahweh to conquer? Answer for me. Who is this Redeemer sent by Yahweh to conquer? Jesus, the conquering King. We follow the King that is conquering the whole world. 
Man, I love the imagery of the word of God. The arm of Yahweh fought against the kingdom of darkness. And what was the weapon he chose? Well, Ephesians 6.17 spoke of taking up the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. When Yahweh fought against the kingdom of darkness, what did he choose to employ? The word that became flesh and dwelt among us, Jesus, his son, God with us, the Redeemer. When Jesus went to battle against the devil in the wilderness, what did he employ as a weapon? The word of God, quoting from the Old Testament. And what are we, the offspring of the conquering king, to employ in the midst of battle? Take a look there at verse 21. God says, and as for me, this is my covenant with them, the offspring, the offspring of the Redeemer. He says, my spirit that is upon you, he's speaking here to the Redeemer, my spirit that is upon you, Jesus, and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. The covenant that God has with us through the work of his son, Jesus, the Redeemer, is by his blood on the cross and accepting that work on your behalf, saying, Jesus, you are my Lord and my Savior. I am unworthy because I am a sinner, but I accept your gift. That is the beginning of salvation. And that same spirit that was within him, Jesus Christ, God places it upon us and within us when we become a believer. And that spirit cooperates with us by grace to fill us with God's word as we immerse ourselves in it. Guys, you can't just wake up today or in the morning and, and, you know, have slept on top of your Bible and hope that the word gets in your brain. You can't just leave it on your shelf. You can't just hope that the one verse you get through your email from Caleb every day is going to help you understand what the Word of God is. Immerse yourselves in it. Keep the daily verse. Don't get me wrong. But immerse yourselves in it. We are to know the Word so well that it is in our hearts and minds and upon our tongues. And the more we allow it to alter our minds and hearts, the more our lives will reflect the light of Christ. And that will enable us to pierce the kingdom of darkness around us. And so the clarion call of the Apostle Paul to the churches that he planted was to arise for battle, to be the people that Isaiah discusses here by waging war alongside the conquering king in the midst of the darkness. Ephesians 5, 14 through 17 says this, Therefore, Scripture says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. How do you understand what the will of the Lord is? You immerse yourself in the Word of God. In 1 Thessalonians, he wrote to the church at Thessalonica, and he says, For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the hope of salvation. Oh my goodness, can I get an amen? We follow the king that is conquering the whole world. Amen. 
We follow the king that is conquering the whole world. And Paul is using the imagery he finds here in Isaiah. Read with me the last little section here, Isaiah 60, verses 1 through 3. We'll go into detail in this in a couple of weeks. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you and the nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. We follow the king that is conquering the whole world. He's conquering through the truth of the gospel and love and justice brought by his people. And it is time for us to arise and break off from the apathy and bring light to the darkness in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in schools, and across the world, in Lebanon, and Burkina Faso, and Haiti, and Indonesia, and next week through IJM. For those of you already waging the good warfare, those of you that are giving your life and waking up for battle, those of you that are countering the oppression and the darkness around us, Christ says to each one of you this morning, well done. Well done. Do not grow weary in well-doing. Keep fighting. We follow the king that is conquering the whole world. For those of you asleep in the midst of the darkness, wake up! God is calling you to awake, to arise, and to follow him in the midst of the battle. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you this morning that when you could find no one to wage warfare against the darkness, you initiated a plan yourself. You sent your son to conquer through his selfless death on the cross. Help us to follow him as he continues his work through the church to conquer the kingdom of darkness. Help us not to fall prey to apathy or become concerned with civilian pursuits. Help us instead to realize that we are to be about your business, operating as your hands and feet in the midst of this world, shining as a light that will draw all people and all nations to you. I pray that we would each take time to be introspective today to ask what civilian pursuits have deadened our understanding that we are at war. Help us to see those for what they are and to lessen their priority and their impact in our lives. And help us in the midst of our daily life to shine as a light that will draw all people and all nations to you. I pray that you would encourage those already in the midst of the fight that are giving their all to you. And I pray that you would awake any of us in this room that have become apathetic or silenced in the midst of the battle. I pray that we would leave from this place and regardless of what darkness we come across, that we would know that we have the power to fight as we follow your son, the king, that is conquering the whole world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.